support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. We have a special episode today. Repeat Decoder guest host and Verge deputy editor Alex Heath is here. Hey, Alex. Hey, Neil. Alex, you just spent an hour with Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. He just announced the new Quest Pro VR headset and a host of other Metaverse products at his conference, MetaConnect. Alex, what are the highlights here? Yeah, so this is Zuckerberg talking for the first time in depth about this new headset that they're unveiling, the Quest Pro. They've been teasing it for a long time. He's been teasing it in videos on his Instagram. Um, It's this high-end mixed reality headset, which is a new concept, I think, that people will experience for the first time if they ever get to try it, where it essentially blends the real world and the virtual in full color using pass-through video. I would say the second big thing with this headset is face and eye tracking. Yes, Meta is doing face and eye tracking. Um, Obviously, (laughs) there's going to be concerns about that on the privacy side. I talked about that with Zuckerberg. He seems confident that they've got that figured out. But essentially, what it allows them to do is make avatars more lifelike and make it seem like you're actually talking to a real person instead of a chunky Sims-like character from the 90s, which is basically what these avatars have looked like to date. Uh, We touched on a lot. He was very gracious with his time. And we also spent some time on this big Microsoft partnership that he announced uh, with Satya Nadella at Connect, which is an interesting strategic alliance of the two tech giants to, I think, take on Apple in the coming headset wars, which I also talk with Zuckerberg about. And I would say throughout the interview, what stood out to me is Zuckerberg is confident. He feels good about this direction they're going. I don't think it's something he's just putting on in the interview. He has this real unique ability to tune out the noise. And we talk about that and how he manages to do that and his kind of worldview there and how that's evolved. I think it's really interesting for other CEOs and people who have public personas online. Zuckerberg probably has the most uh, controversial online persona of anyone in tech. So it was interesting to hear him talk about that. Yeah, that part's interesting, right? Because he's spending billions chasing the metaverse, which is not making any money right now, and losing billions as Apple's ad tracking stuff hits his core business. He has to separate those two things. That's right. And most people probably wouldn't be able to. I think because he's had the success he's had so far in his career, he's cashing in a lot of chips right now and saying, look, you got to trust me. I built this company to where it is now. I've made a lot of shareholders very rich, and I'm going to really cash it all in on this metaverse bet. (laughs) And he's committed, right? Even if this Quest Pro, and to be clear, I think this device is cool. I think it's a good piece of hardware. I don't think it's going to light the world on fire. And I think he's okay with that. I think he sees this as literally a decade-long project, and he's going to keep spending billions of dollars until his vision eventually becomes reality. And that's a level of commitment and really just drive that you don't see that often at the scale that he's investing at. One question I have is the partnership with Microsoft. Microsoft had a mixed reality project called HoloLens. They were building a bunch of stuff for that product. That product fell into chaos, right? They fired the person who was involved in it for being a bad manager in various ways. It seems like HoloLens is over and Microsoft is betting on Facebook's platform. And you're saying all of that is a is a hedge against Apple. I think so. I think at least for Zuckerberg, I think what Microsoft has decided is they want to be the everywhere services company for the metaverse. You know, Satya Nadella, I think, actually used the word metaverse first before Zuckerberg. He's been very excited about this for a while. HoloLens is not long for this world. I'll just say that. Uh, We didn't get into it in the interview, but that's my read based on talking to a lot of people in the industry. 
What Microsoft, I think, has decided is that they can be the enterprise muscle and the software services muscle behind Quest and help it grow in the enterprise, which is really where this technology, I think, is going to grow meaningfully in the short term. And it's also kind of a muscle that Apple doesn't have, right? They're famously a consumer company that doesn't really focus on B2B. And, you know, we talk a lot about platform shifts and how they play out. And Zuckerberg has clearly studied this closely. And what he's thinking is going to happen is that there's going to be another iOS Android type battle playing out in headsets. And he wants to be the Android. And I think part of that is informing this Microsoft partnership. Fascinating because the Quest 2 and the Quest Pro run a forked version of Android. <laughs> That's true. Um, Although they're working on custom software, but yes, right now it's running on Android. Oh, and I should also note, Neilai, the thing I mentioned at the top of the interview that's sitting between us, this interview was also done on video, is the Quest Pro. So I actually got to try it, and it was sitting between us as we were talking. That's a good point. We should get into it, though. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Here we go. Well, Mark, thanks for doing this. We have a lot to talk about, including this thing sitting here between us. Yeah, this, it's a uh, good one. This new device you've got. Yeah. A lot of ground to cover. Actually, I wanted to start where you and I left off a year ago when we had this conversation, which was the rebrand to Meta. It's been a year now. Yeah. Um, the world was very different a year ago. I think your company was in a very different spot. The world was just in a different spot. I guess looking back now, I'd be curious to hear you reflect on doing the rebrand when you did and did it achieve what you hoped it would? That is a good place to start. I'll just start off by saying that, you know, about a year ago this time, you gave us a lot of trouble by, uh, by breaking the news <laughs> of, um, of, uh, of this rebrand. Yeah, so, um, sorry about that. No, well, you know, it's, uh, I, you were doing your job <laughs> and, and I respect that. So I appreciate um, that. But I, I think that that was, that was just about the biggest thing of the year that we were trying to, <laughs> we did, tried so hard to keep it under wraps, but, but somehow you got that one. So touche. Okay. Um, but I, I know there's a bunch to reflect on here. So first is this is a long-term journey. The internal conversations we had actually always expected that the initial moment of the rebrand was going to be quite negative, and that over time we would just sort of build this out, right? Just because there are all these questions around what the future vision is that we're building, and all this stuff is ahead, right? I mean, we're kind of this is the you know the first version of the the work VR device line that we're shipping, and you know it's not going to be until you know later this decade when we're on V4, V5, that this stuff really starts to get fully mature. So I just figured there's so much story here left to fill out, and this is like a long-term thing. So I'd say the initial response to the rebrand dramatically surpassed my expectations about what could be achieved in terms of people um, hearing the vision that we were that we wanted to put out there. And I, I think like almost overnight, you know, in the first few months, you had all these other companies sort of jumping in and, and talking about how they wanted to do stuff in the metaverse too. And I think it really popularized that term and that vision in a way that that just dramatically exceeded what I'd actually expected. You, you, you look surprised. Well, um, uh, it exceeded what I, I'm surprised because it exceeded what I expected as well. The, the way that metaverse became a meme in the business world, really everywhere. And now there's chief metaverse officers at companies, right? Yeah. Um, so, and I mean, you, you, it sounds like you didn't expect for it to catch on quite like that. No, I, I kind of assumed that we were going to have to just continue building out the roadmap and that, I mean, maybe sometime like five years from now, things would start to click and people would start to understand what we were putting together. Instead, I think a lot of people really got a lot of the vision for what it is. I mean, obviously, it's still this high-level concept. and There's a ton of stuff that still needs to get built. But I, I think, you know, it, it caught people's excitement just as as sort of a kind of a long-term hope for what we want to build more than I'd, I'd actually thought was possible. And that I think actually poses different opportunities and challenges. On the one hand, a lot of folks are really excited about working on it. On the other hand, I do think it just sets up for a, a trough of disillusionment at some point because, you know, it is a vision that's far out and, and we're obviously investing a lot and the products are working really well. I mean, Quest 2 is, is working really well. You know, I think a lot of the research that we have and mixed reality, augmented reality, neural interfaces, like all, the, all these, I, I think these are leading uh, across the industry. So I'm really excited about what we're doing, but it's not like this stuff is going to be fully mature and you know, in a year or, or, or even, you know, two or three years, it's going to take a, a long time to build out the next computing platform. Um, so, so we'll see. I think that that's, that's been generally good. But then the, the other piece that I've reflected on a lot is, as you've said, the world is in a 
pretty different place now. The market is in a different place. Um, Your valuation, you have, I mean, it's yeah, I mean, dramatically well, it's, different. Well, us and pretty much everyone else, right? You know, inflation has gone up, interest rates have gone up. When interest rates go up, that weighs on all equity prices, right? But there are kind of some people who are like, maybe a little bit overly kind of financial about thinking through strategy who would say, when you see things like that, then you need to dial back on kind of long-term projects. And I do think you're seeing that uh, across a lot of the, the industry. So there's a part of me that thinks that it actually would have been a lot harder and probably wouldn't have been received as well to have announced this vision this year than last year, given where the world is. So then the question is, well, well how do you feel about that, given that people might be less excited about it now? And you know, I, I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I'm pretty happy, you know, that we did it. I think you could you could either say, hey, it would be looked at, you know, somewhat more negatively today or it would be harder to do today. So or, are you psyched that you did this thing a year ago? And yeah, I mean, because I, I, I think it would have been kind of harder to mobilize around this now. And like, this is what we're here to do for the next, you know, decade or, or however long it takes to build out this next generation of computing that's going to be fundamentally more focused on people and delivering this sense of presence that, you know, you feel like you're right there with another person. So, so yeah, I, I'd say... I'm pretty positive about how it's gone so far, but hmm. but also, um, I don't know, I feel like I've been doing this for long enough to understand that everything that goes well brings its own challenges in different ways too. So I think you, yeah. know, you, just, you just deal with what's in, in front of you, but I'm focused on this over the long term. So, yeah. I mean, you, you've gotten some sense of the roadmap and yeah. we're here today to talk about the next step in the journey. And in some ways it's the beginning of a big part of the journey because work is a big part of computing. Um, there are 200 million people who get new PCs every year, primarily for work. I do think that as we develop the Quest Pro line and, and continue building it out, you're going to be able to do pretty much everything you can do on PCs on VR and more. So I think that this is just another big vector for developing the next computing platform is, is basically this is a step towards you know, all 200 million of those people who get new PCs every year instead, you know, starting to do some of the work in, in VR. In addition yeah. to all the folks who are gaming, doing, right. you know, hanging out socially, et cetera. Well, let's talk about the Quest Pro because I, I got to try it at your research center in Redmond recently. And it's very different from the existing Quest line. And I think there's two big things that people will have probably not experienced until they try it. It'll be the first time they try it and see this is the face tracking and mixed reality. And I wanted to kind of talk about those two points with you, um, maybe starting with mixed reality, which is, this isn't VR in the traditional sense. You're actually mixing video of the world around you with VR. Yeah. Why is this something that needs to exist? I mean, what, what does mixed reality represent on the continuum of like where you've gone with VR today? Just first for, for background, you know, mixed reality, what it basically is, is that you see the physical world around you and then you can overlay digital objects. So you can think about virtual reality is the system is basically painting every pixel, right? So you're in a fully immersive world, you're, you're in a, a completely different place. Over the long term, you'll have augmented reality, which are you know, glasses. Something like what you're wearing now is basically like the target of what we would like to get to. I don't know if you'll be able to get that much smaller than that because there's a lot, of, a lot of electronics to cram yeah. in there, right? The, you know, all the silicon and the projector and the waveguides to display the holograms and the cameras to basically make sure that all the objects and the holograms are locked in the right place in the world and the speakers and batteries and all. Right, okay, right. So, so a lot of stuff to fit into those glasses, but you'll get that. And when you have glasses like what you're wearing now, you'll see the kind of actual photons from the world, things around you, and then you'll overlay holograms just in that place. So mixed reality is sort of this in-between mm -hmm. where it's a VR device that basically every kind of pixel that you're seeing in your in your vision is rendered by by the graphics pipeline in the device but it does this thing called pass through where you have cameras on the outside an array of cameras because um you know your eyes you, we see in stereo right that's how we get 3D so it's not just one camera it's important that you get the different perspectives and it can basically pass that through in high resolution and in color and then given the screen it can either print what the photons are that it's getting from the outside or they can overlay digital objects. So you can be sitting at a, at a desk and have your kind of perfect workstation up with three huge monitors and 
but you can see your physical keyboard in front of you and your physical mouse, so you can control your, your the digital monitors that aren't actually there. With I tried your, this. I tried this yeah. last week, and I will say the monitor thing is compelling. What I noticed was the keyboard itself was a little fuzzy still, and I didn't feel like I could see the keys super well to feel like confident typing. Yeah, I mean, I think that all the stuff will get better over time. There's some kind of tracking augmentation that we can do for certain keyboards too. Sears may just not have had that. But in general, you can get a sense of where where this is going. Right. Yeah. I don't think I mean this is a V1 device, right? So it's not the perfect incarnation of this. I mean, just like Quest One to Quest Two is this huge jump and there's right. a you know many times more sales. I, I I do think, you know, it's like we'll we'll keep on building this out. But but I think that uh, this is the best mixed reality that anyone has built, right? So far. And this is yeah. in this kind of, I think it is enough to introduce the concept to the world, show where it's going, get the development ecosystem starting to go. So you'll you're, you'll get people building use cases for um, for work, whether it's the the desktop, mm-hmm. you know, solo productivity example. You'll be able to have kind of hybrid meetings where you know instead of workrooms, which we have today, where you're in VR and you can see people's avatars. Now you'll be able to have hybrid meetings where you can see, some people can physically be there and you'll see them, but then other people will just show up in VR and you'll see their avatars. So that'll be pretty sweet. Um, so there's, a, I mean, there's a lot yeah. of mixed reality use yeah. cases, I think, that will show out over time. The other component of this is face tracking and mm-hmm. being able to see your face movements and your eye movements. And I see the value in, in the experience. I, I did a demo where I was with one of your employees in workrooms and it, it felt, it did feel more visceral. Like like being able to see how her face reacted yeah. in real time. Yeah. Um, so I understand the use case of it completely. I'm curious how you thought about building that into the product from a privacy perspective, because obviously there's going to be concerns about face tracking. Yeah, and, sure, and- sure. I mean, first let's talk about like what it is and why it's valuable. Sure. Um, I mean, I think, well, I can answer your question quickly yeah. on the privacy side. Yeah. The face sensing data stays on the device right. and we don't send the raw data to apps and people basically have to opt in if they want the an app to, to be able to know where where they're looking, the eye tracking or, or their face expression. And importantly, so, you don't have the raw data either. Like meta. No, it's, it. it's, on, it's the on the device, device. And, yeah. and it's and it's encrypted and then it basically gets thrown away as soon as it's processed. So so I think that, that that's so from a privacy perspective, I think we can okay. I, I actually think that that's been um, You think that's solid. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we've also had people come and audit it, and, yeah. and you know, I'm sure over time we'll we'll add more capabilities, and we'll need to keep thinking through this. So security is never a thing that's done, sure. right? But it's it's something that we've thought through very carefully, given yeah. the the sensitivity around it. But I do think it's worth just talking about why the this is such a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. So mixed reality, I think, is clearly a big deal because it's this bridge between virtual reality, which you can build today, and augmented reality, which you kind of want, but it's it's still a few years away from really mm-hmm. um, being able to get built. So this, this sort of starts to bring that experience in, e- even if it's in a VR form factor. The face expressions are critical because it gets to why we're in this at all, which is we're really focused on the potential of VR and AR to deliver this authentic sense of presence. No other technology can do this, right? It's like when you're on your phone or if you're on a Zoom call, it's nice to be able to see the person. You can like pick up some context around them, but your brain is under no illusion that you are there with them, right? It's like you, you if, if anything, you're trying to convince yourself that you're kind of having a closer interaction. You obviously know you're in a different room and all that. The, the magic of VR for people who have experienced this, you know that it just, it, it basically immediately convinces your mind that you are present in another place and with the people who are there. And when you see avatars, you know, even if they're expressive avatars that aren't yet photorealistic, it, it feels very rich and present when you're there in, in a lot of ways, you know, even more so than, you know, what you would get on a Zoom call today where obviously people show up in a photorealistic sure. way. But there's there's just so much that it, d- it doesn't feel like you're actually present. Whereas even if you have this expressive, somewhat um, cartoon avatar, you know, next to you, it, it actually, you know, you, you feel like you're there next to each other, even if you're, you know, thousands of miles apart if they're on the other coast or something like and that. And that to you is compelling in and of its own right. To, for this technology to where you think that's going to be a reason people gravitate towards Th- this that technology. That to me, that is the primary value of it, is basically the ability to feel and deliver this sense of presence. I think this like human sense of presence is such a profound and magical thing mm-hmm. that and we're a company that just, I mean, like everyone here wakes up in the morning and thinks about how we're going to like help people connect and communicate. You can't deliver that kind of sense of presence on any of the platforms that we've had the opportunity to build on yet, mm-hmm. right? So we built on web, on PC, on mobile. There's a lot of good things about all those platforms, but if you think about like, what is the ultimate expression of social technology, you're not gonna get it on a phone, mm-hmm. right? So that's why 
we're investing so much money in, in like so many of our, our top people in trying to invent and, and accelerate the development of, of this next platform because it's going to enable, I think, the ultimate expression of, of um, you know, what we set out to do with building, yeah. building social software. So then the question is, okay, what are all the things that we just need to like burn down to make it so that like on the list of things that get in the way of feeling like you're even more immersed and present with other people? One of them obviously is realistic expressions, right? So you know, I think that this is going to be one of the defining characteristics of of this product and and hopefully a lot more that we do going forward is the accurate kind of face expressions and ability to make eye contact, which is also really powerful and also something that you can't really do on video calls today. It's it's kind of, yeah. you know, it's like if you try to look at someone's eyes, you're not looking at the camera, yeah. so that, you know. So all these um, kind of weird issues that break the sense of presence. Yeah. But in order to do that, it's a pretty big trade-off in the design because you're putting a bunch of different sensors in there, yeah. which consume a lot of the CPU on the device and, and the, the kind of silicon power budget that you have, basically processing the input from these sensors in order to make it so that when you're in VR and mixed reality and eventually augmented reality, your representation of yourself will have realistic expressions. So I'm interested to see what happens, but I think other folks in the space, you, know, you look at like, Sony's coming out with a new headset this year. I mean, this isn't like a thing that I think that they're prioritizing. I think Apple's headset is going to look and work a lot like this. Actually. Well, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's actually, it's been very hard for us to have any sense of what they're doing. So I, I find yeah. it best to just, I kind think of, we'll know soon. Well, we'll see. yeah, um, well, that'll be interesting too. Yeah. But it's something that this really gets to the mission of what we're, of what we're doing. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'm going to talk to Mark about the steep price of the Quest Pro. It's $14.99, and who he thinks the device is actually for. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back. I wanted to talk about the price of the Quest Pro. It's $1499, which is a lot more expensive than a Quest 2 at $400. You've been very clear that you want to make these devices as cheap as possible to get them in the hands of as many people as possible. I yeah, think in 2017, right. you said you want a billion people in VR. That yep. was your goal. Well, um, it's, a, I, it's a good start. I think, the, it, I think the Quest 2 has done over 10 million sales to date. Does that sound accurate to you? I, I mean, I'm not. I don't think we've, we've, we, we haven't shared any numbers. Why not? Um, Why not that's, it's a good question. <laughs> I, I think we tend to not share numbers until things are a lot bigger. But, a lot bigger. Um, so you're waiting for a certain number. I, I don't actually have a number in mind, okay. but, but I just... I just I'm not sure right. that, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. not sure that there's well, any particular Well, so the estimates to. are that you've done over 10 million with Quest. I'm sure it's higher than that. You're obviously far from a billion, but who is this device for at this price point? Because I think, yeah. you know, the Quest 2 is considered kind of a gaming device. There's a lot of social stuff starting to happen. There's fitness with Supernatural. Yeah. Who is the target customer for this? So there, there are really two sets of folks. One are just 
people who want the best VR device that anyone has made. So I, th I think if you want that, this is it. It is better than the Quest 2. It's a lot more expensive, so it won't be for everyone, but there are some group of people who want that. The second is people who want basically a device that's for productivity. When I think about the market, I think that there are gonna be two basic different kind of tiers and price segments. I think that there's gonna be a, a kind of consumer-oriented segment that is you know, maybe three, four, five hundred dollar devices that people widely can can afford, sort of in the price of an Xbox or mm -hmm. a PlayStation. A lot of the use cases there will be entertainment focused, whether it's gaming or social and, and kind of hanging out with people mm -hmm. um, or things like fitness. Um, and that that list of use cases will just continue growing. But it's it's been pretty cool to see see how that's expanded so far. If you think about how you use computers, there's also clearly a market for people who want to pay you know, or willing to pay $1,500, $2,000, kind of high-end professionals for their workstations. And right? that's I mean, what you imagine being the, the well, audience for this. Yeah, I mean, for this and for the future of the pro line overall. Right, okay. I do think that there's going to be a market for people who want to get, um, the people who are really interested in VR being able to be their primary workstation over time. I think that that's, there's going to be a market around that and people who are sort of high-end professionals there you're already paying thousands of dollars right. for your workstation. So I think that's pretty clear that the ability to get more technology into there to make that even better, um, you do it. Right. Yeah. If I could if I could give all of our engineers a device and have them, you know, be three percent more productive, I'd give them a fifteen hundred dollar device for for sure. So that's kind of the the in terms of the market segmentation, what we expect to happen. There's also this advantage in developing both of them, which is that we can introduce new technology First in this one. In this, yeah. before we can get it into the price point for the consumer right. one, and being able to work on it and developing it actually helps us get it into the consumer one faster and better. And by the time that it is in the consumer one, we already have a developer ecosystem and content around it because even if fewer people are buying the Quest one, it's more of a high-end device, um, it'll be enough to kind right. of get the developer ecosystem going. So of course, we're working on more devices in the consumer line too, right? Yeah. There, there will be a Quest 3 mm -hmm. um, at some point, not this year. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'd love to get you know, some of these features into, into future devices, whether it's Quest yeah. 3, Quest 4. And, you know, the fact that we're building Quest Pro and have that and people can start building for mixed reality and all that is, is I think, going to be um, just a pretty big advantage on that too. You've been pretty open that on the Quest 2, you are not making money on the hardware. Mm -hmm. Are you making money on this, like on a unit basis or? I, I mean, I'd have to look. There are lots of different ways to basically do the accounting on this as, right. as I've I learned. Guess so is this a profit the, generating the basic, device no, for no. you? No, okay. I think the, the, the strategy overall is not to make money on the hardware, but to make it so that it can help develop the ecosystem. And then over time, the business model will be based on software and services. So that, okay. that remains the approach. Um, I wasn't sure because I you invest so much in hardware. You have yeah. so many people working on this. Mm -hmm. You're spending so much money on hardware. I wasn't sure if you had landed on uh, a hardware no, no, that's, that's margin I think, I think business the, or not. It probably depends on how exactly you account for it. So like... If, if you're just saying what is like the materials that go into the device, maybe we're charging a little bit more for that, mm -hmm. for, the, for the device than the materials that go into it. But if you account for all the R&D and everything, then no way. But no, the, the strategy is not, I mean, we're not trying to have premium device prices and make a profit on that. Our whole approach as a company is get as many people as possible to be able to access these tools, and then over time, you build a better ecosystem that way. Got it. I think that this is like a pretty deep part of our philosophy around this overall. We also want to help build the open ecosystem around all of this. So rather than being kind of insular and you know trying to do everything ourselves, and a big part of the theme for this year's Connect is all the partnerships that we have. The partnership with Microsoft, yeah. which is going to be fundamental for, um, you know, we're, not talk about. we're not an enterprise company, right? right. So, so making it so that this can basically succeed with enterprises. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Microsoft yeah, partnership sure. for a minute because I, I, it's a big sweeping partnership. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got Satya Nadella speaking uh, at Connect and um, yeah. Yeah. it's it's across all their services. You've got Teams, you've got, yeah, yeah. I mean, Azure, Windows. What's in it for you and what's in it for Microsoft, I guess, in this dynamic? Because it's unusual to see companies this large, I think, you know, partner at, on such a kind of a broad, broad way. Um. Yeah, I, I'm not actually sure how unusual it is, but I, I agree it's a very big deal for the development of this because I think both companies 
are building important pieces of technology for the next generation of computing. And I think we'll just be able to unlock more together. And one of the things that I'm really excited about, I mean, Teams is obviously great. The Microsoft 365 announcements, you can basically have a have a Windows PC in the cloud. And as part mm-hmm. of your virtual workstation, you can just stream that. So you can have, you know, at the, uh, at the virtual desk that we were talking mm-hmm. about a while ago, you can have three huge monitors that are basically streaming things from your Windows PC in the cloud. But also the announcement around Intune and Azure Active Directory, which are basically the tools that Microsoft sells to enterprises. Um, so the CIOs know that like everything on the device is going to be kind of secure for that enterprise in an enterprise environment, and only the people who are supposed to have access to things get it. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. I and mean, Microsoft has just been building this stuff for, I mean, decades at this point. Right. So while we're building some of the basic tools around this, and maybe in a decade from now, we'll be in a somewhat different place, even though I don't think we're ever going to be primarily an enterprise company. It just, it really jumpstarts this. If, if we're selling this as a work device, um, you know, work, work doesn't just mean enterprise. You know, it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if you would consider, you know, your job like within an enterprise or, but you're clearly a high-end professional, but enterprises are a big part of this. There are a yeah. lot of people who work at very big companies and Microsoft is clearly going to help jumpstart that and also be able to help sell it as, as part of the solution. That was going to be my next question. So, so they send customers to you potentially and they benefit because Azure grows as your ecosystem grows. I mean, well, I think you can imagine something where a company goes to Microsoft and, you know, asks how they can empower their employees in the metaverse. And Microsoft has, among other things that they're working with that company on, one of the options that Microsoft has is to put all the Microsoft suite of services on a Quest Pro yeah. and, and make it easy for, for enterprises to adopt that. I think that that's pretty compelling for both Microsoft and us and the enterprises that now have a turnkey solution to use all of the Microsoft software that they're used to inside their enterprise. And so that's going to be pretty powerful. At the same time, I mean, it's, you know, it's not just Microsoft. We also announced a bunch of software that Adobe is bringing. I mean, they do a lot of, right. um, you know, high-end, high-end, um, you You've know, creative Autodesk work. Autodesk as well. The Autodesk. Yeah. yeah. Accenture, which I, I think is um, in this industry, they're not necessarily seen as like a massive technology company necessarily, but they do a ton of integration and are one of the big kind of technology integrators and creators for that do all the last mile work for all these companies. They're an incredibly important player in the ecosystem. If you're, you know, w- whatever industry you're in, if you want to help, you know, train your employees or, you know, help people troubleshoot, you're kind of training people, whether they're in a factory yeah. or on an oil rig or something. And it's like, like you, you want that, that software to basically be able to work, not just in virtual reality for training, but mixed reality. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome, right? The way you can see the environment around you, you can overlay the training modules on it. Someone has to build that. Yeah. Um, Accenture is basically a great company to do that. That's trusted by all these other enterprises to do that. So I think it's this suite of, uh, in, in kind of set of partnerships that I think lays out that our philosophy on this is that we're not trying to do this all ourselves. Sure. Um, but, and I think that this actually gets to a, a more general philosophy about computing mm-hmm. that I think is going to be pretty important over the next 10 years, which is that as we see this, this play out is that in each generation of computing that I've seen so far, you know, PCs, mobile, there's basically an open ecosystem and there's a closed ecosystem. So in PCs, it was Windows and Mac. In mobile, it was Android and iPhone. And the closed ecosystem, very tightly integrated, relatively insular. A lot of the value basically just flows towards the closed ecosystem over time. Listener um, who's talking about Apple, but yes. Well, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah. I said it's <laughs> yeah. Macintosh and, yeah. and, um, yeah. and, and iPhone. Then the open ecosystem, basically you have much broader partnerships, right? So Microsoft didn't build the chips, they didn't build the PCs, you know, they didn't build the app store, mm-hmm. like all this key stuff that was that was kind of developed around the ecosystem, similar with Android. And that's basically what we hope to build here mm-hmm. is the the open ecosystem for the next generation of computing around virtual and augmented reality in the metaverse more broadly, which which means that they're gonna need to be all these partnerships. And one of the interesting things that, that I just think about in the history of computing is it's it really isn't predetermined which type of ecosystem ends up succeeding more. In PCs, I think you'd say that Windows during the 90s and 2000s especially was really the primary ecosystem in in computing. The open ecosystem was kind of winning. In mobile, I think you'd probably have to say that iOS is the the winning one. Even though there's technically 
a bunch more Androids than iPhones. From a profit perspective, it's. I mean, I think yeah. I think Apple has something like eighty yeah. percent of the yeah. profits, yeah. and and you know, countries like the U.S. I think that they have sixty percent market share mm-hmm. and growing. So I think the closed ecosystem has really won in mobile. Mm-hmm. But I think from that mix over time, it's not predetermined that one model has to win out over the other. And I think we're kind of going to get a reset in the next generation of computing. So our goal and how we approach this is not just to help build the open ecosystem in partnership with all these other companies, but to make sure that in this generation of computing, the open ecosystem wins again. Yeah. I mean, I think that's interesting. So is it fair to say you're taking more of an Android approach then than an Apple approach here? Because you do a lot of custom silicon work. You do a lot of hardware, you build the hardware, you build the software, you build services. You have, I mean, Yeah, I mean, I think that we're, we're still early in the story. So I think that there are pieces of this that we've had to build just because there's no ecosystem right. yet. Right. But our goal is to basically be able to spread that out over time and to yeah. not, you know, I mean, is like in the, in the future, I mean, do I expect that great companies like Samsung are going to be building VR devices? Of course they they are. And like, would I love to work with them? Yeah, of course, you know, at, at, at the right time. So I, I think that things like that, we'll need to kind of figure out how exactly that would work. But we're very early in the ecosystem. I think Quest 2 is really the first mainstream VR device. And I think before Quest 2, most of these other companies weren't even taking it that seriously. Right. And now I think people are more open to it and there's more interesting conversations happening. Yeah. And I I have this theory that when Apple comes out with this headset they've been working on, I think everyone will see this dynamic playing out a lot more clearly that you're talking about. I think right now you're out there leading and there's going to be more entrants that come in, specifically Apple with their approach. And I'm actually wondering while we're on that topic, you know, Apple's done quite a number on you on mobile with that ad tracking prompt, right? You said it cost you like 10 billion or something like that in the last earnings call. Um, Yeah. And I see what they're doing in headsets. They haven't obviously acknowledged it, but it's coming. Do you think those two are related at all? Because what I see is they've really hurt your ads business. Their ads business is also growing pretty dramatically at the same time. And they're about to compete with you in headsets. Do you see those things as connected? Um, It's really hard to know. It's hard for me to... You have to have an idea, though. I mean... I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think to some degree, it really... it's It's hard to know what you know, what documents or conversations they have over there that either connect or don't these different parts of the strategy or or whatever. I mean, it's certainly plausible that they kind of see this competition in the future and want to hinder us. I mean, I think one thing that's been pretty clear is that their motives in doing the things that they're doing are not as altruistic as they claim them to be. I'm sure that they believe at some level in the things that they're doing and think that they're good for their customers. But I, it can't just be a coincidence that it also aligns very well with their strategy. Right. Um, so it, it's hard for me to go too deep on this because I mean, right. I, I don't, I don't work at Apple. I don't, yeah. I don't know them that well. Yeah. Um, and and at the end of the day, I can't really control what they do. Right. right? So and they um, may not let you on their headset, do your apps on their headset. That may be the dynamic that plays out. Right. And so I guess what I'm trying to connect the dots here is: Do you feel a necessity to build this stuff because of how the platform dynamics have shaped out on mobile? Um. That's not the main reason, but I think it it certainly is a is one consideration. Sure. I mean, it, my belief in the the notion of the metaverse and and these platforms dates back to before I started Facebook. You know, I mean, I, I told the story last year around how you know, I, I like remember when I was in middle school and I used to like be in math class and would just like not be paying attention to my teacher and just be like writing code in my notebook or ideas for things that I wanted to go code or build when I went home from school that day. And one of the things that I was really excited about was this idea of a kind of social environment where you could be present and immersive and like a 3D environment around that. And it's at the time I was like, I was a middle school kid. I didn't necessarily have the math background or the um, mm-hmm. or the computing power available to, to build a bunch of that stuff. But I mean, I, I've been Pretty much my whole life, I've I've been interested in kind of the intersection of technology and how people relate to each other. In college, Mm -hmm. I studied psychology and computer science, right? So, and this has obviously been the the, kind of the full history of the company has been building this kind of social software. So I think that more of the motivation for this, it's this longstanding notion that basically this will unlock, in in my view, the ultimate expression of, of kind of social technology, the ability to be present and feel like you're there with another person, no matter where you actually are. 
I don't know. I mean, just think about this. It's like, we're doing this podcast live in person. You know, you mentioned the other day that you kind of hadn't done a ton of in-person stuff right. since COVID started, but like, we don't have the technology yet to basically do something like this and have it feel like there's, there's some reason why you want to do the podcast in person, yeah. right? It's like, it, like there's, there's a connection that you have in person. There's a reason why you didn't want to do this over zoom. Sure. Right. We've done and it over zoom. It's, it's, it's not the same. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I just think that like when this gets developed, I, I really think it's good. Like the ability to have this conversation where in the future, like I'm just a hologram sitting here. If we can't actually be here together or from another country around mm -hmm. the world or you're a hologram or, but it feels like we're physically there together. I just think that there's like a real magic to that that's yeah. going to enable really great experiences. And you can kind of get some of that in VR today, but unfortunately there's this dynamic that we've seen that things that feel really neat and present when you're in VR, they don't yet translate that well to 2D, right? So if you take a video of us sitting there in workrooms, we, we might feel like, oh, wow, this is actually pretty amazing. It's like, we feel like we're right there, but then you you put it in 2D and you put, yeah. put a video online. It collapses it. Yeah. It It's yeah. just like, oh, that, that kind of looks, yeah. um, that just looks flat, right? Yeah. Um, doesn't look that interesting, which I think is part of the reason why we're why we're not doing this in VR right now, even though I think yeah. we, we very well could. But I think we'll get there over the next few years too, in terms of the graphical fidelity and, and kind of photo realism around, yeah. um, around more of the stuff. It's very, um, it's to hearing you talk about it. I mean, you're so, you're obviously so passionate about it. You have such a deep conviction about it. Do you feel the kind of outside people still doubting this strategy and doubting that this is actually going to be a thing at the scale that you seem to just mm -hmm. have deep conviction that it will be? I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that still don't A, understand what the metaverse even means, but uh -huh. B, also see the appeal of why they should even try one of these headsets. And do you just think it's going to be kind of a slow, gradual, like more people yeah. network effects will come in over yeah. time? Yeah, it'll start or is there slow gonna be and like then it'll an, get faster and okay. faster and faster. So you're not seeing some like aha killer app moment that really like catches on like wildfire. It's You really see this as being a gradual thing throughout this decade? Well, I think if you're trying to build something at the scale of billions of people, that doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Right, so, I mean, I someone- mean, Facebook grew really fast. <laughs> um, it took- eight years to yeah. reach a billion people. I mean, yeah, in hindsight, when you say it that way, yeah. I actually think I, I saw some someone saying that this week or today is the 10-year anniversary of us reaching a billion people, which I think is kind of, a, kind of an interesting thing. But no, it took, it took a while. And it's a lot easier to grow software on top of a platform that someone has already built than to basically ship, you know, yeah. atoms yeah. around. So yeah, but, but I think, so this, I think it happens more in step functions, like you're saying, but... It's like all these little S-curves that, that add yeah. up to getting there over time. I don't know. I, I kind of, I enjoy being doubted. It's, um, <laughs> you do? I, I mean. How do, you, how do you still enjoy it? <laughs> why, why do you enjoy it? I, I don't know. Um, if too many people kind of get or, or think that what you're doing is obviously going to happen, then I don't know. I just think it, it, gets, um, it, gets, huh. it gets a little comfortable. So you feed off the hate a little bit. It's not, hate is different from doubt. Right, haters. Um, well, I actually think one of the difficult things about running one of these companies or just being like a public person on the internet now is separating out um, people who are constructive about trying to build something versus people who are just haters. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who are not trying to help anything. And you probably have more haters than just about anyone in time. I mean, I think yeah. once you reach a certain scale, yeah. I think you're... Yeah you get saturated. Yeah. So I'm not sure. You've got to, you've <laughs> I'm got, not sure how much I mean, you probably, you have to but, separate that out for your own sanity too. I, I have to imagine. But also just like, you're trying to find useful signal, yeah. right? It's, I mean, if you, if you tune out everyone who thinks that you're not doing something right, then you're going to miss a lot of really valuable signal to do stuff better than you're doing it today. So you want to not ignore critique, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I just think that there are a lot of people who don't actually, who actually aren't trying to help and aren't trying to make, things better. Yeah. So I think it's a continual struggle for, I think, a lot yeah. of public people on the internet, not just me. We have to take one more break, but we're coming back. And you know, I had to ask Mark about TikTok and Elon owning Twitter. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens. 
with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And we're back. I wanted to talk about what's happening on the, the family of apps on the social media side a little bit, because you've got yeah. this big change happening with this discovery engine approach that you're undertaking in feed. And uh, I mean, the, the elephant in the room is TikTok, right? And kind of what they introduced to the world where Facebook and Instagram were built on these friends and follower models, showing you content from them mostly. You call it connected in, yeah. internally versus unconnected. Mm-hmm. TikTok was like, we're just going to show you what we think our AI things you'll like. And it turns yeah. out people really like that. And you're currently re-architecting the feeds to be more like TikTok's For You page in the sense that it's going to be content that you me- maybe necessarily didn't even know you wanted to see. Yeah. Right? And you said that this is a huge AI challenge. It's a huge technical undertaking. I think you said internally it'll take a while mm-hmm. for you to like be where TikTok is in terms of how good Very technical term. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering what is the actual... What is the AI challenge that you're currently having the teams go through to make this discovery engine as compelling as you want it to be? The basic thing is, um, you know, when we got started with Newsfeed, we were years away from having the technology to be able to do the content understanding on each post in the system, understand what they're about, understand what you care about, and then be able to recommend you in real time, basically, with very low latency, content that you might be interested in from across, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of posts that are out there. If you think about it, it's actually a lot easier of a problem to basically take the several hundred things that your friends and the accounts that you follow have posted today and just to rank them in the order that you might want to see them. Mm-hmm. And we're not necessarily recommending you content. You, you've chosen to follow those people. And we're just making sure that, okay, if your cousin has a baby, you're not going to miss that. Right. right. Whereas like if someone who just posts a ton of stuff and you always ignore it, posts again, that maybe that's like a little further down or something. I think that there are really two major innovations recently. And I, and I, and I think you're right that, that TikTok really showed that a bunch of these things were possible. So one is the emergence of like, really short form video, Mm -hmm. right? So when YouTube first came about, people kind of called YouTube short form compared Mm -hmm. to TV shows. Now YouTube is kind of long form, right? Um, So, which is kind of crazy and and we're old. Um, um, But I think that partially what TikTok has shown is that basically there is a medium which is even more short form video that's really powerful, which I think builds on some of the stories formats that we've seen over Mm -hmm. over the years. But that's, that's a thing. That's that's one trend that I think is is just pretty clear. Like video is is becoming bigger across the apps. I think I think it's something like fifty percent or more yeah. of the time spent on Facebook now is watching video. So and you've been calling out this video trend for yeah, years. Yeah. That's a known thing. I think yeah, the ranking it, thing and the focusing on unconnected yeah, is was, the big That was what I'm gonna get to. The AI technology to now not just be able to rank the content that you're following from friends, but also really be able to actually do a very good job of basically recommending content from the whole corpus of content that's out there and making that be good. That's something that I think has only really started being possible in the last few years to do very well. The thing is that doesn't just apply to video, right? So while, while TikTok might just be doing that for video, Facebook and Instagram are a lot of formats, right? right. So on, on Facebook, you have there's photos, text, links, news, groups, long form video, all these different kinds of things, stories. On Instagram, there, there aren't all of those formats, but you have photo, long-form video, stories, yeah. a, a bunch of different things, I mean, hashtags. The same basic discovery engine technology that makes it so that you can understand what a person might be interested in and understand the meaning of all these posts and then match that up so that way you're, you're showing a person something that they might be interested in, even if they never expressed an interest in that thing directly, that's going to apply to all these different formats. Right. So I think that's a really interesting problem and a really interesting opportunity that I think we uniquely have to be able to go build. Because it's over the history of our company, we've had you know a number of competitors that focus on a single format. And one of the things that I think we've done well is um, taken on the challenge of blending the different formats together into a single feed that basically can make it so that you can get all of the different content that you're interested in because it's not all all going to be video that you want to watch with sound on. Yeah. Um, 
And you clearly can't just flip a switch on this, like changing feed into this discovery engine. It sounds very complex. Yeah, but it's also, it's not a binary thing, right? So to your point about flipping a switch, we don't have to. What's basically going to happen is that over the next year or two, what you're going to see is just, we'll start showing more recommended content in the feed. Mm-hmm. And we'll know that we're doing a good job because the, the content in the beginning is going to displace some other content. Right. And either displacing that content is going to lead to negative feedback from people and lead to you know people connecting with each other less and all the metrics that we yeah. that we focus on or it will actually lead to people connecting more and being more satisfied with the product. So in in the beginning we'll start off with you know whether it's 10, 12% of of the content will be recommended, but I actually think we'll get to a future in the next couple of years where I don't know, you might have 30, 40% of the content is recommended. The people who you care about are always going to be really important to yeah. this. So that's not going away, right? You'll you'll always really want to get that content too. And I think that that'll be a, an important differentiator for, for our yeah. services, being able to do that in addition to the recommended content. But, but I do think the amount of recommended content will ramp up. While we're on TikTok, um, you were very early on to saying, you know, TikTok, there's problems with its Chinese ownership. We should be concerned about this. You gave a speech a few years ago about this. Now everyone's- The speech wasn't about that. It, the you, speech was about- No, but you talked about it. Was, it yeah, the speech I, I think was broadly about the how, how people speech. were, how I felt like some of the calls to to censor more content were getting to a, right. a zone that that I felt was, right. was kind of dangerous I'm, and too much. And, right. I, and I'm not a complete absolutist on this. I think that there are- a lot of things that that are problematic that need to be moderated and dealt with. But I, I also think that there's a line and, and I, I think we need to make sure. We, well, we, well, where I was going to go is that well. I think that the, the TikTok fear has only grown stronger. It's being talked about in DC all the time. Yeah. What do you think the US government should do about TikTok? Are you in favor of a ban? Are you in favor of a spinoff? Is this an area that the government should get into? Obviously, it would help you competitively, but do you have other concerns about it? I don't know what the solution is even though I do think it's a real question. I mean, I think in the U.S., one of the things that I think is is sort of interesting is in the U.S., there's such a clear distinction between the private and public sector. And the companies here operate independently. And I think people understandably get upset if the integration is is too too much or if there's, you know, if there isn't good separation there. But when I travel overseas, one of the things that's surprising to me is in most other countries around the world, those sectors are blended so much they almost don't believe that America operates the way it does. And China, more so than, than any other country that I've been to, um, it's, it is very integrated. The notion that like an American company wouldn't just like obviously be working with the American government on every single thing is completely foreign there, which I think mm-hmm. does speak to um, at, at, least, at least sort of how they're used to operating. So, so I don't know what that means. I think that that's a thing to be aware of, but- This sounds like you haven't formed a real opinion on what should happen. I, and I, I try to- spend my time on things that I can make an impact on. Well, okay. Well, I, so on the feed quickly, I haven't heard you talk about this or reflect on this. The last era of the feed was this thing you called meaningful social interactions. Mm-hmm. And you were really prioritizing content that your close friends commented on and engaged with. Discovery Engine feels like a departure from that and then in that you're introducing content that's not from your friends into the feed. Yeah. Is that a fair distinction? I, Do you feel so like I think it's a different loop. The way that people interact in the past was you know someone would post something and then there would be a lot of comments in feed. Right. I think the way that social services have evolved is that most of your kind of real interactions at this point are in messaging. So the way that feed is primarily creating value at this point is showing people content that you go find and you send to your friends in messaging and have real interactions in messaging. So from that perspective, it used to matter more who posted the content that you saw in feed because if you were commenting on it, in line, you were interacting with the person who posted yeah. it. Now I think it still matters in the sense that you want to know what's going on in your friends' lives. So if you're not getting updates from them in feed, there's a set of people who maybe aren't your closest friends and maybe it's like your yeah. second or third ring of people that you care about, but like they're not going to you know, personally message you to, to kind of update you on everything that you still want to know what's going on with them. Feed is important for that. But increasingly what we're seeing is in the flywheel around Discovery Engine is whether it's uh, content from a creator or content from a friend, you see something interesting, you send it to a group of friends or a friend, and then you, you're kind of interacting there. That actually does facilitate real interactions between people. Mm. Um, 
But I know I'm sure you've seen this in your own use of these services. I mean, messaging it, is really where I think everyone has the, this feeling about how yeah. the feeds have changed. And I guess yeah. what I'm trying to get from you is, do you feel like that MSI, the Meaningful Social Interactions era, what's your take on how it went? Because I think you said at the time, if it works, it's going to lead to less time spent on Facebook. And I'm okay with that. I want it to be time well spent. And, yeah. now, and now you're shifting into video, which is a lot of consumption and, and a lot of viewing. And Yeah. I well, guess, so, so you're conflating. A f- there are a few different things there. The meaningful social interactions shift that we made was when we started seeing this trend that basically people were starting to comment less. At the same time, people were watching more video, especially longer form video was displacing a bunch of content from friends. And people were actually writing it and saying, hey, I'm missing stuff from my friends because I'm watching all these videos. So we're like, okay, two things that we want to do. One is we want to make sure you're not missing content from your friends because that's what we're here to do, yeah. right? It's um, You can find some entertaining videos here and you can do that in other places too, but you're not going to find that the content from your friends and, and other places. So we want to make sure we're doing that well. So that was the comment that I made around, even if we show less video and time spent goes down, which it did, that still seems like a good thing over time because mm-hmm. we're here to help you interact. And we're constantly evolving the, the algorithm and way that feed works. But at the time, we wanted to make sure there wasn't changes that we were making that were basically leading to this... Um, decline in, in commenting in, mm-hmm. in line. So we wanted to make sure that we were building feed and optimizing for people interacting, not mm-hmm. just viewing content and passively consuming it. Um, uh, do you feel like the Discovery Engine will get people to consume more passively? Is that a concern for you? Well, no, because of the, the thing that I'm saying, which is that most of the meaningful interactions at this point are shifting to messaging. What we see is if we build feed in a way that isn't necessarily trying to optimize the amount of time and feed, but the the kind of engine that's driving that thinks that if I show you a piece of content and you think it's interesting, and let's say you don't do anything in feed, but you send it to a friend uh, and then have a message thread there, okay. like if that's good- You can go towards that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that that is good, right? Okay. So I, I think that the initial push towards, I think what is kind of technically in the, in the press called the MSI change, mm-hmm. which- from my perspective, was more of this sort of directional shift in, in feed mm-hmm. that we've evolved towards and, and continue pushing on. No, I, I think that that like reflects the values of the company. It's like, of okay. course, we want to we want to have feed lead to more interactions between people and not just passive consumption of content. But I, I think you also want to make sure that we're being dynamic about like what are the ways that people are actually interacting. Now. Yeah, I would love to know what you think of Be Real. They're growing very fast. Have you tried it? What do you What do you think about what they're doing? Focusing I mean, on close friends. I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Is it something that you think like your products could use more of, or do you feel like that's more of the messaging component? Well, so my basic sense of the ways that social media are is is evolving is basically there's a kind of a whimsical fun element of it, and then there's like a professionalized element of it. Mm-hmm. So if you look at like the whimsical fun element. It's basically this constant pursuit of finding new things that feel authentic, you know, whether it was, you know, initially just being able to update your profile at college or or be able to have a status update or, you know, be able to take an ephemeral photo or post a story. It's like these things, I think, in the beginning, they feel so, so fun and like whimsical and, and people feel like they can be authentic doing it. But then over time, it just kind of you get used to it and then it sort of gets a little bit more professionalized yeah. and then you the need, brands come in, et cetera. Yeah. And, yeah. and then you need a, um, so I think that there's just a constant need for innovation of new things like this. And I think what they're doing is, is an interesting example of it. But I think what's going to be challenging is that those things have a time limit. And then basically the companies that continue doing well, don't just do one, but basically are able to kind of build a bunch or implement a bunch. And saying that that'll be an interesting thing to see. But yeah. but I think what they're, what they're onto is certainly interesting. The other direction that I think is, is we're also seeing more and more is just the professionalization. And that's basically, I mean, the, the other way to talk about this, the creator economy, which is, I mean, creators, um, like a lot of them really look at this as it can be very business focused, right? You're trying to create content that you think is awesome and connect with an audience that you care about and express your values. So it's it's not cold and, and it's it's kind of this important thing. But at the end of the day, a lot of the creators also care about where am I actually going to be able to most effectively reach the the people in my in my community? Mm-hmm. Um, where am I going to get the most engagement and, and mm-hmm. kind of have the highest quality engagement? And then ultimately, how am I going to be able to support myself and, and make a good living doing this? And I think as those tools get built up more, 
the kind of professionalization and the creator economy around social media is growing to be a bigger and bigger part of what social media is. Yeah. And that obviously has a pretty big flywheel with the discovery engine too, mm -hmm. because without a creator economy that is robust, you don't have a lot of content to recommend. So you, you kind of need that kind of base of good content in order to, to kind of have the discovery engine go well too. Yeah. All right. Last question. It looks like Elon might actually be buying Twitter after all. Any advice? Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, what do, what, do you think Twitter is going to be better off? I mean, what, this has been such a wild saga. Yeah. Uh, I'm really curious what you make of it. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's uh, this is another one of these things that I, I it's really unclear how it'll actually turn out. So I, you know, obviously it's it's out there. And I think it's interesting as a saga, like you're like you're saying. But I think even at this point, it's not actually clear what's going to happen. <laughs> All right. Mark, thanks for doing this. Yeah, happy to. Thanks. Thanks again to Alex Heath. And of course, thanks to Mark Zuckerberg for taking the time to come on Decoder. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. And as so many of you have noticed, if you tweet at me about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone, Viren Pavic, and Jackie McDermott, who was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino, and our editorial director is Brooke Minters. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.